This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on CityCast Philly, we're taking some time off as the year wraps up, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. We're revisiting some of our favorite episodes of the year and handing out some well-deserved superlatives. We'll be back in the new year with fresh episodes. Our pick for most likely to outlive us all is... The Trocadero Theater. This historic theater has been closed since 2019, but this year it was announced that there's some money to reopen it. I spoke with Peter Schmitz, an adjunct theater history professor at Temple University, about the theater's wild past and predictions for its future. It's Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. I'm Trinae Nuri, and this is CityCast Philly. Peter Schmidt is an adjunct theater history professor at Temple University and host of the Adventures in Theater History Philadelphia podcast. So, Peter, it's been announced that the currently closed but historic Trocadero Theater, which was located on 1003 Arch Street in Chinatown, is getting a multi-million dollar grant to reopen. So first, Peter, can you catch me up here? Why is this theater so significant to Philly? Well, it's it's historic because it's there. What's really interesting about the Trocadero is that it has survived. Mm. And it survived for all sorts of fairly random reasons. It wasn't nothing inevitable. There have been dozens of much larger and much more famous theater buildings over the past 150 years or 200 years in Philadelphia. And most of them have bit the dust, especially from the 19th century. But the Trocadero dates back to a very interesting time in Philadelphia theater history, and that's it was built in 1870, as everyone always remembers. Okay. And it, it had a, an interesting architect, a guy named Edwin Forrest Durang. He was named after the great actor Edwin Forrest by his father, who was a friend of his. And um, But E.F. Durang was an architect who mostly built churches. This was his main theater building, and it was commissioned by uh, Simmons and Slocum, who were a, as you say, a minstrel show company. Mm. Now, minstrel shows in the mid-19th century were essentially a venue for popular music. Now, it was definitely, you know, blackface, what we would now consider unacceptable racist presentation. Right. And that just for our listeners, blackface is when a performer would paint their face black as a way to make fun or neg negatively stereotype black or brown people. So, Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly. But in the early 1870s, there was also a lot of competition for white minstrel show companies from black minstrel shows. And in fact, what happened very quickly after Simmons and Slocum went into business is that they sort of went out of business because most white minstrel show performers couldn't compete with the black minstrel shows that were going on at the same time. So 
And the other thing that happened to the, um, the, the theater itself was two years after it was built, it burned down. What? There was a fire? That is not that is not unremarkable in the history of theater in the 19th century. Okay. Almost every theater in the city of Philadelphia had a fire. Um, the only two that haven't were the Academy of Music and the Walnut, which is why they're still standing. Uh, so, but they rebuilt it. The investors rebuilt it right away, and um, basically to the original design. But it was never able to um, to flourish in that market. That, that neighborhood that it's in, we now call it Chinatown. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 19th century, it was mostly a neighborhood of Quakers, right? Uh, but as the Quaker population began to move out, some theaters, things started to move in. And, um, and then a lot of other sort of sketchier businesses. There were a lot of billiard halls, a lot of uh, drinking establishments, mm -hmm. and a lot of bordellos, frankly, began to spring up in that north of Market Street, right around there. It began to be called the Tenderloin. Okay, Peter, what does, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, Tenderloin, you, there's similar uh, neighborhoods in New York and in San Francisco and other areas. Tenderloin was, it was the choicest cuts of meat. That refers to the <laughs> amount of graft and bribery that could be gotten there by the police, by municipal officials, who, of course, were taking a quiet cut of all these, you know, less than respectable businesses. How did that Tenderloin District influence or impact what performances happened at the TROC? Well, exactly. So there was another theater just at block down at uh, 9th uh, and Arch, which was called a Dime Museum, which used to show off freaks and sideshows and do crazy uh, uh, burlesque things. And then the Art Street Theater was farther down from that. So there was increasing a demand for light opera or um, melodrama companies. And the theater became known many different names over the course of the next 20 or 30 years. It's uh, It's been known as the uh, Simmons and Slocum's, Sweatman's, the Park Theater, the New Art Street Opera House, the Continental Theater, the Gaiety Theater, the Casino Theater. And finally, in the late 1890s, um, it becomes known as the Trocadero. Now, the Trocadero, interestingly, is a name of a town in Spain. Okay. Right? Okay. And there was a big battle there in the 1820s, uh, which was won by the French army. So the French army named, the, the French kings named a palace. There was a Palais de Trocadero in Paris, which there still is, and a neighborhood called the Trocadero. And again, that neighborhood in Paris uh, had a reputation as being the place where you could find a lot of uh, entertaining reviews featuring young women dancing in very little. As I get it. So, I get it. <laughs> all right. So there was a trend in American show business towards the end of the 19th century of uh, a lot of dancing hall girls, but you would use French associations in order to tell people what they were going to go see. So you th see theaters named the Bijou or the Trocadero or the Folie Bergère or, you know, the Moulin Rouge, right? So the Trocadero uh, became a place where burlesque happened. Mm -hmm. So in, in the hierarchy of, of American theater at the time, we're talking about sort of mid to low level type of theater. It was usually a cast of all women burlesquing more serious shows and usually doing it not not stripping, but in as little shows as possible. So they're they're sexually exciting, but they also had a lot of sort of artistic 
integrity, as it were. Usually there was one male comedian who was sort of the MC of the show. And that became the Trocadero's um, policy, as they used to call it. Mm. And there were various touring burlesque companies, and they'd come to the Trocadero in Philadelphia for gigs of two to four weeks. Now, the Trocadero was not the only theater doing this. That whole neighborhood that we were talking about north of Broad Street mm -hmm. had a bunch of other theaters, especially along 8th Street. Uh, there was a whole line of theaters, Four Paws and the Gaiety and others, that featured shows like that. So how did the Troc compete? Well, the reason that it survived is very interesting. Around the World War I, mm -hmm. there was a huge movement to clean up American cities because the people were worried about the moral and physical health of our troops, right? Mm. They were worried that they were visiting bordellos around these neighborhoods and catching uh, venereal diseases, right? Ah. So there was a huge movement to shut these things all down, to bulldoze them, to arrest everybody. There were police sweeps. One of them during World War I was the fact that uh, there was an exclusion zone outside defense industries of half a mile where no enemy aliens, if you were, if you've been born in Germany, you couldn't enter this zone. You couldn't even go to that part of Philadelphia, right? Wow, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the Trocadero there on <laughs> 10th and Arch was just outside of the exclusion zone. So it did not fall under these legal strictures while the other theaters that were closer to Franklin Square did. Mm. And in fact, in the period from about 1918 to 1922, almost all of those other theaters went out of business. But the Trocadero survives. Now, by the, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, burlesque has changed. It now becomes... People stop spelling it with a Q-U-E at the end, and they start spelling it with a K. <laughs> okay. It's a little harder, right? And it's moved from being sort of these well-integrated, fun, sexy shows uh, to hardcore stripping, right? And the uh, the strippers had very you know fancy names, which were part of the appeal, right? Mm. They would be known as, say, you know, uh, Melba, the toast of the town, or um, Miss B. Haven, who's naughty but nice, right. or Frances Bacon, come see her strip. And in the newspapers, if you look at the Philadelphia newspapers, there's always these very well, you know, these sort of garish ads um, advertising the name of the head stripper that was appearing at the truck by this time. But if you look at photographs from that period, you'll see that the, the grand exterior of the building, the facade, is becoming terribly derelict, and it's mostly being covered over by big tarps and things. And the whole neighborhood around there had gotten exceedingly run down in this period. Um, and it was mostly run, I mean, one assumes uh, by people who were paying off the local mob, you know, but the man who, who ran it in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was really devoted to keeping this genre of performance alive, mostly by interspersing it with uh, adult films in between the, the live acts. But uh, by 1970s, even this can't isn't a sustainable business model. There's just too much um, available elsewhere. Okay, yeah. So that ends and the the theater itself is bought up by um, a, uh, a Chinese American businessman because now by this time that neighborhood north of Broad Street has become Philadelphia's Chinatown. Right. So it becomes uh, in the 1980s um, this businessman runs it as a venue for showing Chinese action movies 
um, and it's uh, very popular uh, and in, in that genre for a while. But then by the 1990s, the idea as Philadelphia is beginning to become more popular as a venue for young people to move into and live sort of a free and bohemian life, it becomes a, uh, a concert venue. And this is the way that most people would know the Trocadero. Yes, or that's the how I know the Troc. Right. <laughs> right, as it generally gets known. So a lot goes on um, in, in that state. It gets fixed up. Um, they they fix up the facade. They fix up the storefront, you know, era, part of it there mm -hmm. because it was. Really, I've seen photographs from the truck in the late seventies, early eighties, and it was in just appalling shape uh, physically. Mm -hmm. But the new owners, you know, put some money into it and fixed it up, and it became the place where you would go and see generally indie uh, shows. Right, mm -hmm. so things that could use a venue of between you know five hundred and a thousand seats. So. By the 1990s, it actually gets put onto first, you know, the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places and then the National Register. Uh, it gets sort of landmarked. But that's really only the exterior. The interior can't really be landmarked because so much has, has changed in there. And it, even though it becomes a very popular concert venue and it's a great place where a lot of, you know, punk bands will... They'll, they'll crowd surf there. They'll jump off the balconies into the waiting crowd. A lot of wild uh, evenings happen there. But by, 19, by uh, 2019, even before the pandemic, it closes down right. uh, for various reasons. And it's been shuttered ever since then. But what I'm really encouraged about as a theater historian is from the recent announcement that they had received a very large state grant. Um, and it looks like they're going to upgrade you know, the real basic infrastructure of an old building that needs upgrading. But the fact that they're actually going to preserve the stage, preserve the proscenium arch, preserve the, the curving balconies, preserve the cast iron columns within them, and a couple of uh, uh, lions, I think, that are on either side That's of so the cool. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that is a commitment to the historic integrity and the long-term story of what um, Philadelphia entertainment has been about over the past 150 years. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, Peter, you are also a dialect coach and you have been an actor for 40 years. What's your personal connection to the truck? My personal connection... I remembered going to see benefits from the, the Pig Iron Theater Company, which is one of Philadelphia's great cutting-edge theater companies, holds an annual, or used to, hold an annual uh, gala there. And the uh, the great drag performer, uh, Martha Graham Cracker, would perform there. So that, I remember going to, to see that and finding out this is just an amazing, warm, and uh, intimate venue, which feels like it's very Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And it the, it has that quality of only in Philadelphia about it. That's nice. I came to the truck uh, in the 2000s. <laughs> and I saw the music group, The Internet, and I saw a 
rap performance by Pusha T, and he had lights, and the right. sound was insane. The crowd, and I was in the balcony, yeah. and that's what right. I remember about that historic balcony that you were that you were mentioning before. Right. Well, that's because it's of a size and of an era when performance was much more intimate. And every neighborhood had a neighborhood theater like that. And there was often a very intense relationship between the stage and the crowd. Mm. And because this space remains from that era, you can have that kind of uh, uh, experience in there, which you wouldn't have in a more modern venue. Peter Schmitz is an adjunct theater history professor at Temple University. Thank you so much for teaching me so much history about the truck and for joining me on CityCast Philly. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You can listen to more from Peter on his podcast, Adventures in Theater History Philadelphia. We'll have links in our show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and hit that subscribe button. Be sure to sign up for our morning newsletter, too. It's called Hey Philly. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more superlatives to close out 2022. Bye.